All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And this section is the final piece of the first major subject of 1 Corinthians. That first major subject revolves around status and divisions and wisdom and the cross. And Paul began that topic in chapter 1, verse 10, and it continues all the way down here to the end of verse 16. And the specific problem in Corinth that's being addressed in this first major section of 1 Corinthians is that the Corinthians are dividing along the lines of various leaders, and it seems to have to do with wisdom and status and who's more impressive by fleshly standards. So what Paul does from 110 all through this section is this. Let me just review a little bit. Paul shows how the cross completely subverts the wisdom of the world. He tells them that if they were mature, they would actually recognize that, but they don't, and that's because they're living according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. Then what he began to do in chapter 3 is he set out to show them that he and Apollos and really all Christian leaders are merely servants who are accountable to God and that the church is God's temple, and thus whoever works and serves and builds God's temple needs to do so mindful of the fact that they are accountable to God and God will evaluate their work. So here in chapter 4, 1 through 16, Paul wraps up that discussion of uh, the nature of Christian leadership as servants, and then he draws out some implications specifically for the Corinthian situation. So it works like this. Chapter 4, 1 through 5, is the first part of this where Paul wraps up the discussion that began in chapter 3 about what it means to be a Christian leader. Christian leaders are servants. They're not celebrities. They're not status symbols. Then in 4, 6 through 16, Paul draws out the implications of all of that for the situation in Corinth with the specific aim of humbling the Corinthians so that they begin to think and act with regard to status the same way that Paul thinks and acts. So let's begin in chapter 4, verse 1. Remember, 4, 1 through 5, Paul's wrapping up the discussion he began in chapter 3, and he begins by saying, this is the way any person is to regard us. So here's how you should think about us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul here uses two specific words to describe himself and his team, and really all leaders in the church. He uses the word servant. In fact, Paul uses a very unique word here. It's a different word than he used in chapter 3, verse 5. There it was the word diakonos, which is the normal word for servant or minister. It's the word we get our English word deacon from, diakonos. But here it's, it's a different word. It's hooperetes, which this is the only place that word shows up in Paul's writings. And this particular word can mean helper, it can mean assistant. It was used, for example, of an assistant to, say, a senator or an assistant to a physician. And so it can mean helper or assistant or some sort of general subordinate. But in combination with the next word that Paul uses, which is the word steward, uh, servant here indicates that Paul is thinking of a servant in a household. He operates under the owner of the household and on his behalf. So the first word, way he describes himself as servant. Think of us as servants. And then he follows that up with the word steward, stewards of the mysteries of God. 
Steward isn't a word we use every day in English, and the basic idea here is that of a household manager, which was a well-known, well-established, common role in the ancient world. It's interesting because we always think of uh, servants as like lowly, but a household manager had a huge responsibility. He managed all the servants for the owner of the household for the the landowner, right? He had a large estate. He had a large house. He would have various servants working various uh, jobs. He might have even some employees. And the manager was responsible over all of that. That's what the steward is. And so it's actually a fairly important and high position in a house, but it's still a servant and he still operates uh, on behalf of the owner of the house. So these two words together, servant and steward, remind the Corinthians and us that Paul and all Christian leaders are servants. They're not celebrities. They're not like gurus who should be followed because they're so wise and so incredible. They are servants with a high responsibility. That is, they are stewards within God's household. And so as stewards, they're responsible to the head of the house, and thus, in verse 2, Paul says this, In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. That word trustworthy is literally faithful. A steward has to be found faithful to his task and his responsibility according to the agenda and the purposes of the owner of the house. A steward is responsible to the owner. And for one who's a steward of God's mystery, that's their responsibility. They're responsible to manage and uh, distribute God's mysteries according to God's ways and God's purposes. And so they have to be faithful in both conduct and in message. They don't get to go off script and they don't get to do it their way. They're accountable to God as his steward. So Paul continues in verse 3 and he says, but to me... It is an insignificant matter that I would be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. Now, the point isn't that these things don't matter at all. We got to remember, we got to read it in context. And it's that they um, aren't the ones who determine how faithfully he, as a steward of God, has carried out his stewardship. In the original context, the Corinthians are making judgments about various leaders, and from that, they're aligning themselves with their preferred one, their preferred leader, and the result was divisions in the church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and all of that. Their verdict, however, or even a secular court's verdict, a human court's verdict, Paul says, really doesn't matter much in the grand scheme of things. In fact, Paul says, my own verdict doesn't even matter in the grand scheme of things. What matters for a steward is the evaluation of the head of the house. And in Paul's case, that means the evaluation from God himself. That's whose opinion, that's whose verdict really matters. And so he says in verse 4, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. As far as Paul can assess he believes he's been faithful to the responsibility that God has given him as his servant and steward. But that doesn't even really matter. What matters is God's verdict. And so he says in the second half of verse 4, However, I'm not vindicated by this, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So even though I, I'm not aware of anything against myself, Paul says, that doesn't put me in the right. 
What really matters is God's examination of me, his evaluation of my stewardship. It's his evaluation that either means I was in the right or I was not, that I was faithful or I was not. That's what matters. And so put that together with verse 3. Their evaluation of Paul doesn't matter. Any human secular court's evaluation of Paul and his ministry doesn't matter. Paul's own self-examination of his ministry in the grand scheme of things isn't what puts him in the right. What matters is what God thinks. Was Paul faithful by the head of the household standards? That is, by the evaluation of the Lord. So he continues on then in verse 5 and says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of human hearts, and then praise will come to each person from God. See, it's God's evaluation that matters. And so he says, quit evaluating, quit passing judgment before the time. And the time here seems to refer to the final day. It reads more literally, do not pass judgment before the time until the Lord comes. They've supplied a few words in this translation to free it up. But that's literally what we're talking about is the time of the Lord's coming. That's the day. And he's the one who, who will evaluate things. And it's his evaluation that finally matters. And when that day arrives and the Lord comes, he will make it clear who was faithful and who wasn't. In fact, Paul notes here in verse 5 two things that he will bring to light. The first is he will bring to light things hidden in the darkness. And so when that day comes, he will shine a light on hidden things. Not only that, he will disclose the motives of human hearts. And the word motives there in verse 5 is actually better translated purposes or plans, or maybe even intentions. The Lord's judgment will make it clear what people were really actually pursuing and purposing by their actions. Were they really serving themselves and their own glory and their own honor and their own agenda? Or were they really just simply carrying out the responsibilities that God had entrusted to them? And so on that day, when the Lord comes, he will actually evaluate uh, people's stewardship and service to him. And then He says true acclaim can be had because each person will receive praise from God for their faithful service to him. So let's summarize just a little bit what Paul has said from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way up to this point in chapter 4. Paul has made the point that he and any other Christian leader is simply a servant who is accountable to God. And he's called the Corinthians then to consider how they're thinking about and how they're evaluating their leaders. And that in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter because they operate under God. So now, beginning in verse 6, what Paul does is he directly applies these things to the Corinthians and he draws out some implications for the way they're acting and the way they're behaving. And he does so with sarcasm and a little rhetorical flourish all aimed at appealing to them to humble themselves and cease fighting over status. So he says in verse 6, Now, these things, brothers and sisters, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos on your account, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. What Paul is saying is he's used himself and Apollos and their relationship and their role as servants under God really as an example or a pattern. He says, I've figuratively applied 
these things to myself and to Apollos on your account. What he means is, I've offered myself as an example or a pattern, sort of like a giant word picture for you to think through, uh, and specifically a pattern for how he wants them to think and act regarding leaders and leadership and status and wisdom and all of that. And Paul states here in verse 6, two goals for uh, setting he and Apollos forward as patterns. The first goal is that they may learn not to go beyond what is written. And by what is written, Paul means either what he's just written or what is written in the scriptures in general, that they will, they will actually be faithful to the, the pattern for leadership and for life that is written in God's word in general. And then the second goal actually makes clear the specific thing that he has in mind by that. So specifically, number two, that they'll not be arrogant and act against each other. Uh, this is what he wants. He wants them not to be puffed up and proud against one another. So to, to not go beyond what is written means they won't be arrogant towards each other like this. So what Paul has written from chapter 3 on is really, he says, a pattern using he and uh, Apollos to help them learn not to be arrogant towards and against one another. And then as Paul wraps up this topic, he breaks out some rhetorical questions and a little sarcasm that he wants to use to really challenge them how to think and how to act. So verse 7 says, for who considers you as superior? Now, this is a little tricky to translate. Literally, it's who judges between you? And we've seen this word judging and evaluating throughout this section. And this word is related to that. And so who judges between you? And the idea of the verb that is translated in the New American Standard here is considers as superior is to judge between, to distinguish or differentiate between. It has to do with making a distinction. What uh, it seems to be getting at here is the behavior of the Corinthians who are making distinctions about who's better and who's more spiritual, and they're doing that in all the wrong ways. So that's the idea of being arrogant against one another at the end of verse 6. And so you could better translate it as, who distinguishes between you as to who's better than the other? Then he asked another rhetorical question, and he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? I mean, you can't take credit for what somebody else gives you that you simply received as a gift. And so when it comes to life in Christ and the salvation we've had and whatever spiritual gifts you have, it's just all a gift. It's all of grace. And so you can't take credit for that. You can't think, well, I'm better than you because look at me, right? It's all of grace if we're in Christ at all. And so he says another rhetorical question. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? I mean, since it's all a gift that you received, why do you boast? And why are you arrogant against one another? Why do you promote yourself and vie for status and honor here in the family of God? Everything you have, you've received as a gift. Then comes a little sarcasm in verse 8. He says, you're already filled. You're already rich. 
You've already become kings without us. Literally, when he says become kings, it's you've already begun to reign. And so do you hear the sarcasm? You're already filled. You're already rich. You've already become kings. This is a little sarcasm making light of those who think they're something special, who think that they've arrived spiritually. And somehow they did this, even without Paul and his team, as if they reached these great heights of spirituality all on their own. And so the sarcasm is intended really to put them in their place. And then Paul finishes off verse 8 by saying this. He says, And indeed, I wish that you had become kings. Again, that you had already begun to reign, literally. I wish that you'd already begun to reign so that we might reign with you. Paul finishes off his sarcastic challenge by noting that there actually will come a time when they will reign. And when that happens, Paul plus the apostles and Uh, all of them, they will all reign too. And that'll come about in the final kingdom of God. But not today. Today is not that day. And the way of reigning in that kingdom is not self-promotion. It's not elevating yourself. It's humbling yourselves. And so that day hasn't come. So quit vying for status. Quit acting as if you've already arrived spiritually. And then this sarcasm leads Paul to describing the way the apostles actually carry out their life and ministry. And again, he seems to be doing that as a pattern for the Corinthians. So look what he says in verse 9. He says, For I think God exhibited us, that is the apostles, last of all as men condemned to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to mankind. Notice the way Paul says this. He says, I think God exhibited us, the apostles, last of all. It's not just what happened to them. It's not just how the apostles have chosen to operate. This is God's way. This is what God has done. God has exhibited us. He's set them forth in this way. And he says specifically that God has exhibited us last of all as men condemned to die. This may allude to or hint at Uh, The idea of the triumphal procession in the Greco-Roman world, where typically the captives at the end of the line, as last of all, were those that were condemned to death as prisoners of war. And Paul may be hinting at that. He actually uses that imagery explicitly in 2 Corinthians, but he makes a slightly different point with it there. So when we get to 2 Corinthians on the commentary, we'll discuss that. But here, he seems to be hinting at this idea of, we're, we apostles are sort of like the last in line as men condemned to die. And he describes them as uh, having become spectacles to the world. The, the word spectacle literally is a theater. We're, we're like a theater displaying the way of Christ, which is the way of cross, the way of uh, picking up your cross and following him, the way of death. Paul actually, again, describes this very theme more fully in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the apostles don't only preach the cross, they embody the cross. And and the fact that Paul takes that up and develops it fully in the next letter to them, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, suggests that he realizes, man, they just aren't getting it. And so he gives it a full treatment. So God has exhibited the apostles. He had shown them forth, made them a a theater, a spectacle of the way of the cross. And they are a spectacle of this to the world. And Paul clarifies what he means by that by saying to angels and to mankind. So not just to the physical world, but even to the spiritual world as well. They display the wisdom of the cross in their very approach to life.
Paul then goes on in verse 10 to contrast the way of life displayed by the apostles with what's going on in the church at Corinth. He says in verse 10, We are fools on account of Christ, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. And so here, once again, a little bit of rhetorical flourish, maybe even a little bit of uh, sarcasm underneath. Um, They are seeking to be wise by the standards of the world, to be strong and to be powerful, to be important and distinguished, while the apostles, the apostles are fools for the sake of Jesus. They are weak and they are unimportant by the world's standards. Indeed, the way of life that the apostles are modeling for them is completely contrary to such an approach, to this approach of being wise and strong and honorable. In fact, what Paul says in verse 11 is up to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. All these things speak to the lowliness of the manner of life of the apostles, which stands in contrast to what the Corinthians are doing and the way they're acting. When he says in verse 12 that we labor working with our hands, I mean, manual labor was looked down upon in the Greco-Roman world. A wise person, a person of means and a person of honor, they would never do that. But Paul did. In fact, Paul did it regularly. In fact, when he first came to Corinth, he worked in a leather works and tent shop for a while and preached part-time in his spare time. He worked with Aquila and Priscilla. You can read about that in uh, Acts chapter 18. He did that until his uh, co-workers came down from Macedonia and brought with them some funds so that he could give himself full-time to preaching and teaching. And so Paul was not going to take a patronage from somebody. And that was a sore spot with the Corinthians. He was going to work with his hands, which again was a sore spot because that did not look very uh, honorable. That certainly didn't look like you were impressive and powerful or anything like that. And so we labor working with our hands. Then he begins to describe some of the ways they responded to the way they were treated. When we are verbally abused, we blessed. And so when they're spoken bad about, verbally abused is the idea of being reviled. Uh, Peter describes the way Jesus acted this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, 23. Describing Jesus, he says, while being abusively insulted, while being reviled, he didn't insult in return. Paul says, we didn't either. In fact, we blessed uh, when we are verbally abused. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, he says, we reply as friends. And not really sure why this translation chose to put it as we reply as friends. Literally, it's we encourage or we we entreat. And so when we're slandered, we simply encourage and entreat people to try to do the right things. All of this, of course, reflects the way of Jesus and models his way for the Corinthians Um, And they, on the other hand, in contrast to that, they aren't lowering themselves at all, but they're vying for self-promotion and elevating themselves. Paul continues his description of the apostles here in the last little bit of verse 13 by saying, We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Again, he's simply trying to describe with rhetorical flourish what it looks like for the apostles to lower themselves in service to Jesus. And he chooses two phrases here that roughly mean the same thing. The scum of the world, the dregs of all things. Both refer to what's removed when you're wiping something off or cleaning something. So when he says the scum of the world, it's like the mud or the refuse that scraped off a sandal. 
Um, or when he says the dregs of all things, it's like the filth on a rag after wiping something off and cleaning it. Paul says, we apostles have become like that in the eyes of the world. Now, don't lose the overall context in which Paul is saying all this. He's saying all of this to drive home the point to the Corinthians that self-lowering is part of serving and following Jesus. Uh, it's not self-promotion and self-evaluation. It's not about status and honor and rank. And that's what's causing all these divisions in the church at Corinth. Then Paul ends this first major topic of the letter. So remember, we're at the, the tail end of the first big subject in the letter of 1 Corinthians, and Paul ends it here in verses 14 through 16 by affirming his relationship with the Corinthians and by appealing to them to imitate him. Everything he said, even though it's hard-hitting and challenging, everything comes from a father's heart, and he wants them to learn the way of Jesus. And so he says in verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I'm not trying to disgrace you or shame you. I'm, I'm trying to admonish you and exhort you and uh, challenge you like you're my beloved children. For, he says in verse 15, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. The word tutor was a well-known Greek figure in the Greco-Roman world. It referred to a servant in the house who was responsible for the care and development of the child. Typically, um, keeping the child focuses on his studies and whatever other training he was in. But he was, he was really like a super nanny in charge of making sure the child did everything he was supposed to do and was growing the way he was supposed to grow and develop. That was the tutor, the tutor. And so Paul says, look, you, you could have many tutors in Christ, but you're not going to have many fathers. You're only going to have one. And then he says, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Um, so he's not just one of many tutors. He's their father. Why is that? Because he's the one that brought the gospel to him for the first time. He's the one that got uh, the church started there. So he is the one who fathered the gospel faith in and among them in Corinth. And so he's their father in the faith. And so his final appeal on this subject is this. Therefore, since he's their father, and since he's appealing to them, since he's shown them what it looks like to walk in the way of, of Jesus, verse 16, therefore, I urge you, be imitators of me. Paul's life offers them a concrete pattern of what Jesus' way looks like. In fact, he'll say this again on a different subject in chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. This is actually a fairly common theme in Paul's letters where Paul will appeal to the people he's writing to to follow his example. Why? Because Paul knew that discipleship really is a life-on-life -life transfer. Paul knew that in order to follow Jesus is so contrary to the way of the world that people need concrete patterns of what that looks like. And so here in this letter and in his life among them for 18 months, Paul has offered them that concrete example, that pattern of what following Jesus looks like. And so now as he's laid all this out to them here in these first handful of chapters of 1 Corinthians, he ends it by saying, imitate me. As I follow Jesus, I want you to do the same. Think about what he's just said, how Paul has said about his self-lowering, about how he's, he's 
viewed so badly by the standards of the world, like he's the scum of the world. He's the dregs of all things, right? Like, And he's appealing to them. I want you, not that I want you to be treated that way. I want you, however, to lower yourself and quit arguing and fighting over status and trying to look good and rallying around people and thinking of the, your leaders as celebrities and status symbols rather than as servants who are modeling for you the way of Jesus. Imitate me as I'm trying to imitate Jesus. And so with that, Paul wraps up the first major section of 1 Corinthians. The last little paragraph at the end of chapter 4 is really transitional, tying up a few loose ends from this and transitioning into the next major topic, and we'll pick that up in the next recording. Hey, Thanks for tuning in to this session on the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of people all around the world, people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support, both financially and in prayer. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can go to listenerscommentary.com listenerscommentary.com. You can click the give button and you can set up a monthly donation right there, or you can give a one-time donation right there. You can also support this ministry uh, through the Listener's Commentary Study Hub and setting up a donation there and getting access to everything in the hub as well. So thanks a ton for your support.